Welcome to Two Chicks, Three Seats, the podcast that takes a look at the hospitality industry's hottest topics. Two Chicks, Three Seats is hosted by Kate Kennedy and Rachel Calkins and is brought to you by Triple Seat, the industry leader in event management software. Find out more about Triple Seat at TripleSeat.com. Welcome back to another episode of Two Chicks, Three Seats. This week in March brings us to just about the one-year mark from when the COVID-19 pandemic broke out across the United States and changed the hospitality industry as we have always known it. Restaurants have gone through tremendous struggle and change as they have navigated this pandemic and the fight is still going 12 months later. For today's episode, we are so excited to announce that we have a special guest, Andrew Riggi, joining us to talk about the past, present, and future of the New York City hospitality scene. Andrew Riggi is the executive director, director at the New York City Hospitality Alliance and comes from years and years of experience in the hospitality industry. Andrew has been a major advocate for the New York City hospitality community throughout the past year, and we are so lucky to have him here today to share his knowledge with our listeners. So welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you, Kate. No problem. Um, could you give us, like, um, you know, our listeners who don't know who you are already, a quick intro about yourself and the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Sure. Well, first, thanks for all the great work that you and the whole team have been uh, doing over the past year and even before that. Um, so the Hospitality Alliance, we formed the New York City Hospitality Alliance back in 2012, really to give New York City's restaurant, bar, knife light owner operators, their own independent voice in the halls of government, an organization really to provide them information on a lot of the issues that we're advocating for when it comes to labor laws, food safety, permits, licensing, and countless other issues the industry's dealt with. Um, and then we do a lot of education and training, and that education and training tends to be similar to the information and our government advocacy. Um, so everything like how do you earn and keep an A letter grade from the health department? How do you comply with the very complex labor laws? And then we do stuff that's a little bit more fun, I guess you could call it. Um, you know, how technology is reshaping the hospitality industry, which is certainly, you know, your field. Yeah. Um, and we try to have a little bit of fun too. I mean, at least pre-pandemic, we had a big annual award. We do quarterly cocktail parties to really get the industry out of their own businesses where they are hosting events for people and mm -hmm. on the floor of their restaurants and bars and in a room together to really create a community to make sure that we have a united industry. And I think it was so critically important to have that structure in place, particularly last mm -hmm. year when COVID hit and has really decimated our industry. Absolutely. I mean, I think that what you guys do aligns a lot with what we try to do at Triple C too, with our social hours. And um, when we could do in person, we do party people events to get people together to network in, you know, in different markets in the hospitality industry. And um, obviously the pandemic has shown us that there is a community in the hospitality industry and everyone is together on everything for sure. sure. Yeah. Um, well, to start off with a question for you. So over the past year, you've been advocating for the restaurants, bars, venues throughout New York City to help them get the assistance, resources and support that they've needed due to the pandemic. So can you tell our listeners about some of the biggest challenges that you work to overcome on behalf of the restaurant community in the past year? 
Thanks, Rachel. Yeah, it's been extremely difficult. You know, since even we before we were shut down, we saw a lot of our restaurants, particularly restaurants in Chinatown that were hit hard because lack of tourism, because there was all this controversy about this virus coming out of China. Um, but then you fast forward, you know, through the end of January, through February, and then mid-March when we got shut down, there was just so much uncertainty about, are we going to shut down today and come back in two weeks? Well, obviously here we are a year later and we're still not fully back. So we know the answer to that. So we really got in the weeds at a policy level at the city, state, and federal level. So, you know, first off, we got a lot of city laws enacted that were so important. We got this suspension of personal liability guarantees and leases enacted through our city council and Mayor de Blasio signed it into law. A lot of small businesses, restaurant owners, when they sign their lease, they also sign a personal liability provision, meaning if the rent doesn't get paid, they are held liable personally. Now you can imagine how devastating that would have been if people have been unable to pay their rent because government shut them down, so they can't generate revenue. And not only are they losing their business, but then come on, someone comes after their home, you know, their uh-huh. landlord comes over their other assets. Right. That was really important. And that was also coupled with a state moratorium on evictions, mm-hmm. meaning that, you know, a landlords couldn't go to eviction court and get you thrown out for a default because you're not paying rent. Um, so I think those two policies alone have been among the most important in so much that they've kept so many restaurants open artificially, really. Right. You know, I keep saying it's not always about how many places have shut down to date, but really how many restaurants and bars are being kept open um, artificially. Uh, we got some things like a cap on third party delivery fees from Grubhub mm-hmm. and Seamless and some other platforms that were charging really high rates. We got... Um, Fines waived, sidewalk cafes, and the outdoor dining open restaurants program. Uh, we were an architect behind that. We were really pushing. We knew that if restaurants had reduced occupancy, or in New York City's case, zero occupancy right. inside <laughs> at all, we were going to have to have more occupancy outside. Uh, so more than 11,000 restaurants, I believe it was the final tally, participated in the open restaurants program. It's been so popular, not because and only help restaurants survive. It brought back about 100,000 jobs when after we were initially shut down. And it also brought up vibrancy and energy back to the city streets, which I think was and will continue to be so important. And it was so popular that it's being made permanent. Um, we also had the original PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program, we advocated to get some changes for, which would allow a larger portion of the PPP loan to be used on uh, rent. Uh, initially, you could have you could only use, I think it was 75% had to go to payroll and 25% could go to rent and utilities. Right. But in a place like New York City, where we were shut down, we didn't need all the labor mm-hmm. and we have high rents. Right. So we were able to get the ratio change to 60% being spent <clears throat> on payroll, 40% on rent and utilities. And that PPP loan could then still be converted from a loan into a grant. So those are a few of the initial policies that were just so important. Unfortunately, it's like no matter what we do, they're all band-aids. Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. You you spoke about the fine read. I was reading about the fine reduction. Mm-hmm. Um, you you were working towards that, and you went in front of uh, New York City Council to mm-hmm. um, enact that. And I'm just I'm interested in that because I when I was managing restaurants in Boston, 
Um, you know, similar, I mean, Boston has the blue laws, which are crazy restrictions on restaurants and bars and nightclubs. And I found myself sitting in front of city council too many times to count to try to fight fines that we were given for small infractions that, you know, shouldn't have been fines and should have been more educational. Um, so I just, I, what, I, I guess what prompted that? I just thought it was such a, I've never heard of it before. So when I was reading, I was like, wow, that's, that should happen everywhere. <laughs> Yeah. So this has been a big thing in cities. You know, mm -hmm. um, we always would say, and it's not really joking around, but, you know, New York City would treat restaurants and bars and other small businesses like their personal ATM. Right. Um, yeah. When you ran a restaurant or a bar, an inspector comes in. Oh, you know, you're going to pay. Yeah. Like they just have <laughs> to cite you violations and yep. it's fine. Um, mm -hmm. And this is something we had been yelling about long before the pandemic hit. You know, we need to reshape how local government interacts with the restaurant and small business community. Mm -hmm. And we don't need to just focus on fines. And even the premise of it is kind of ridiculous because if fines were really the way to achieve greater compliance, you would see fines go up, up, up. Right. Compliance would continue to go up. And at some point it would kind of plateau. Everyone would be complying and fines would come back down. Somehow that's never really happened. <laughs> fines just continue to go up, up, go up. up, up yeah. And then what's funny over the past, I don't know, five, six years, maybe even more now, we've gotten some changes made to reduce fines. Mm -hmm. But even they're like, oh, look, we've reduced fines by $20 million. And you're like, yeah, but you reduced them from $20 million since when? If you right. go back five years before that, you increase them by $40 million. So you say <laughs> yeah. you brought them down by $20 million. Well, they're still $20 million too, too high. high. Yeah. So our focus and what this legislation would set up would to do would identify, you know, the hundreds, if not thousands of different violations that the different city agencies can issue to restaurants and bars and other small businesses. And those violations that don't pose an immediate hazard to the public or mm -hmm. to workers would allow for a warning or a cure period. So instead of an inspector just coming in and saying, boom, that's $250, that's a $400 fine, the inspector would say, that's a violation. They would explain why it's a violation. Mm -hmm. And then you would have an opportunity to cure it before mm -hmm. a violation could be issued. So if the inspector came in and the first time issued a warning and then say they came back six months later, for an inspection. Mm -hmm. Then the second time, if it still existed, you would get a fine. Which but makes would, sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it would really change the regulatory culture to one that focuses on education, training, and compliance mm -hmm. from one that currently exists where people think it's just punitive. Yeah. And I think it will also change the dynamic. And maybe you saw this when you were uh, you know, in, in Boston. Like the tense relationship that exists oh, between God, the horrible. restaurant or the bar <laughs> yeah. and the inspector. You know, so you true. feel like no matter what they do, they're here to get you. And mm -hmm. I feel bad because I've spoken with inspectors before and they feel like they are in this impossible situation because if they go back to the office and they don't have any fines or any violations, well, they're going to think they're not doing their job. Right. Right. So this would really allow them to really be an educator first and hopefully change that dynamic. So it's more, uh, you know, collaborative. Mm -hmm. That's so true. And it's, it's just, um, yeah, it brought back a lot of memories for me. <laughs> you know, we were, we were friendly with our, with like the health inspector and, and, you know, the other inspectors that would come in like liquor licensing board, but, but they, like you said, I think they felt like they had to give us fines because otherwise they would, they would get a slap on the wrist yeah. and they didn't want mm -hmm. that. So it's, um, yeah, I think it's a great initiative and, um, other cities should definitely be looking into doing the same thing if they're not already. Sure. Um, 
So uh, not to jump around, I feel like I just jumped. <laughs> all good. Jump all all right. <laughs> so um, I, we, we touched on this earlier, but how has um, the community that has been created through the New York City Hospitality Alliance helped with advocating for restaurants during the pandemic? And, and also, I think before, like you were saying with the, you know, with the networking events that you did and all that stuff. Oh, I mean, that's everything. You know, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's people power. The reason we formed the Hospitality Alliance is because individually, as one-off businesses, you're not extremely powerful. But mm -hmm. if we unite our voice, we are powerful. And we're able to tell the story about how vital we are to the economic foundation of New York City. You know, the hundreds of thousands of people we employ, the billions of dollars in revenue we generate. And not just directly the restaurant owners and restaurant workers, but think about like a triple seat or think about the countless totally. other vendors and suppliers mm -hmm. to the industry that rely on a vibrant restaurant nightlife events industry for their own livelihoods. Mm -hmm. So I think we are able to really harness that vitality of the industry and channel it for good. And when we've been advocating for all of these policies, because we already had this established community and network of individuals, we were able to reach out and say, contact your local council member, contact your assembly member, your senator, fill out this survey so we can then use it to create a report to tell the story about how our city's hospitality industry has been devastated. Um, and it provides us the fuel and support to do our work. You know, I mentioned earlier the law we got that suspends enforcement of personal liability guarantees mm -hmm. in um, in leases. I mean, that all came about because we were having a virtual board meeting with some elected leaders in our restaurant and nightlife members. And this came up as a big issue. And we said, oh, my goodness, like, why don't we just try to pass a law that uh, will suspend the enforcement of these provisions until after the pandemic? And boom, you know, that's how this was Amazing. created. So yeah. we're able to use their experience. We're able to use their support. We harness that vitality to advocate and fight for the industry. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you've seen it and it's been really incredible around the country. And I've seen it around the globe, you know, all these different pockets of restaurant, nightlife operators, events, people uniting together and forming these localized associations mm -hmm. to have a bigger voice. And it's thrilled because I've been doing this for so many years and it's right. always been so difficult because people are working nights, weekends, holidays. It's a low margin business, so they don't mm -hmm. have tons of money just to like fund these types of organizations. But COVID was a real catalyst for bringing the industry together, uniting it. And I hope that continues, you know, long after COVID. Yeah, I think that, you know, something interesting, I mean, I know that the, the pandemic has been devastating to the hospitality industry. But at the same time, I feel like it's brought to light for public who don't work in hospitality, like just how important restaurants are, how important the community is. And also, you know, how difficult it is to make it in the restaurant industry. I think a lot of folks don't realize the low margins that restaurants work on, you know, without a pandemic. So um, I do think that that was a little bit of a bright side from, from the pandemic was, was bringing that to light. I mean, I know that my parents, like from watching, you know, the news and, and they're definitely old, much older <laughs> in their eighties. And they're like, wow, now we realize why well, you always were like, you need to tip 20% always like you need to, you know, yeah. and I would always like try to drill that into them. And they were like watching all these things about the hospitality industry on TV. We never realized like, 
you know, that they don't make that much money and, and it's hard to succeed and like all these things that, you know, otherwise maybe they wouldn't have really believed me, you know, for yeah. before, so. Well, I think that's right. You know, so many people, you know, when the pandemic hit, you know, restaurants are and bars, they're our social spaces. They're where we come together to socialize. But when the pandemic hit, all of a sudden we were told we need to be socially distant. And especially in places like New York City, where like life happens at our restaurants, at our nightlife, you know, it's so much more than just like any regular small business and any regular small business is amazing. But people tend to have a real emotional attachment because it's where you make memories. It's where you just go for happy hour with friends after work or where you go on a first date or, you know, celebrate a kid's birthday or just go have a great meal. So people connect to it. Cultures obviously connect to the cuisine they eat, the rituals around consuming that food. Um, so I think people really, really connected with what was happy in the world when they saw their favorite local restaurants and bars shutting. Mm -hmm. And I think because we have been united, because we have been out there telling our story, people like your parents and so many others <laughs> have really been like, wow, yeah, I sure. get it now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, New York City is not New York City without our restaurants. Absolutely America not. is not America without our restaurants. It's so pretty true. amazing. I feel like and the community has just been everything, like you guys were saying, during the pandemic and moving forward. Um, yeah. But so moving on to the next question that we had, and it sounds like it has been a positive experience, but what has your overall experience been like working with the New York uh, government to accomplish the goals that you were talking about at the beginning and even for other cities, how they could be doing similar things to what you have been doing on their local and state levels? Yeah. So how do I say this? being nice and honest. <laughs> I mean, it's been extraordinarily challenging. Yeah. You know, I, I, I always try to, before I just go after someone, I always try to put myself in, in their shoes. I mean, government was hit with an unprecedented um, crisis, mm -hmm. one that you could never imagine, one that you couldn't fully prepare for. Um, and I think there was a obviously challenges at all levels of government. I think at that time, the federal government should have provided much, much more leadership to the states and to the cities. That clearly did not happen. I think we have our own internal politics here in New York City versus New York State. And while we were able, at least at a city level, to get many policies together that help the industry, there were even challenges there. I mean, the outdoor dining was the thing we were out front advocating for at the beginning. The program's incredible. It's going to be made permanent. But there were issues where they retroactively changed some of the requirements after people had built their outdoor dining structures. Oh, and then they got right. notices saying that if you don't take them down, you're not going to be able to use them and you're going to receive fines. And they spent all that money they didn't have. And then- Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Oh. So, you know, there, there's been so many challenges. Listen, if I was in there, of course, I, I would be like, we're going to do things much different. Um, so I guess that's a long way of saying, yes, government has done some things okay. We need to right. recognize that different levels of government have different levels of jurisdiction and authority. Mm -hmm. At mm -hmm. the end of the day, what restaurants and bars and nightlife really need is cash. If you're mandating that they stay shut down now for a year or severely limit their operations, they're not going to be able to survive no matter how much outdoor dining you give them. I right. mean, we have brutally cold winters. It's <laughs> so much here in New York this winter. Um, 
you know, uh, 25%, 35%, 50% indoor dining. Like it's just not, it's not Not enough. enough. Capping third-party delivery fees, incredibly important. All these other policies, you know, I mentioned all critically important, but Mm -hmm. you know, we, uh, you know, uh, you know, they're like band-aids on a cannon wound. Hopefully this new round of stimulus, which I know we'll talk about in a little while, will help get people from now until it starts warming up, more people can mm. do outdoor dining. And, you know, we seem to be on a good path as far as the um, infection rates and hospitalization rates continue to go down. And the biggest and most important long term, the vaccine. Of and course, it sounds yeah. like by the spring, there'll be vaccines for everyone that needs them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe <laughs> the light at the end of the tunnel uh, that's starting to creep through you know it's not another train it's actually uh, a, a light now we just need to get people from here to there yep well okay so let's let's talk about because that's big news right now and i do want to start by you know because you were saying it you know most of the stuff that's happened is, is ba- a band-aid right and i think the cares act which was um which was introduced about a year ago i think mm-hmm. april maybe of 2020 um it contained the ppp what they were calling a grant, but it was really a loan, let's be mm-hmm. honest, for restaurants. Um, and it was flawed, like, right from the get-go. Um, so now, 11 months later, <laughs> finally, um, the Senate has passed the um, American Rescue Plan, which includes, uh, what is it, 28, $28.6 billion in actual grants, um, not loans, <laughs> to restaurants in need. Um, and as we're recording right now, it it has it's been passed through Senate, but it hasn't been passed through the House. And obviously, it still needs to get to the president's desk to sign, which we know it will hopefully today, maybe within hours. Um, and that's huge news. I know that you were lobbying for this with um, with Schumer and trying to get this passed and and you know doing all that you can. Um, so you must be thrilled, along with everyone in the hospitality industry. You probably know more about it than we do. (laughs) So can you maybe tell us a little bit about what this means for restaurants in New York City specifically, but also, you know, restaurants across the country? Yeah, so it's incredibly important. It's modeled on legislation that was introduced called the Restaurants Act. Uh, This is a smaller fund amount, but Senator Schumer and others have been clear that if the $28.6 billion in this first round gets exhausted, they'll go to up it again and refund it. Uh, Similar to what happened with the first round of PPP. You may remember that the money got exhausted and then they added more money to it. Uh, But what this is, is a structured and dedicated fund for the nation's brutalized restaurant industry. Um, It would provide a grant, not a loan, so not more debt, a grant to restaurants. The way that you would calculate it, and there's a few different ways, but if you were open and operating, you know, in 2019, you would take your 2019 sales, you subtract your 2020 sales, and then you would subtract PPP money if you received it. And whatever amount was left, you'll receive that in a grant that could be used through the end of the year to pay rent, payroll for your employees, vendor expenses, you know, think about all the vendors and purveyors that we've been unable to fully pay. So it helps stimulate the economy there. We can use it on utilities and all of these other expenses. So it's a sizable grant. It's capped at $5 million per location. And if you're a restaurant group, the group in total can receive up to $10 million in grant money. And this is the best 
program that that's out there. It's not like the PPP where we have to artificially keep people employed. And then we have to meet all these specific requirements in order for it to be converted from a loan to a grant. Some people have been unable to do that maybe, and now they just have more debt. So it's specifically for restaurants, structured for restaurants, and it's going to help save countless restaurants countless jobs and really support the whole economic ecosystem that relies on a vibrant industry. And hopefully this can get everyone to, you know, through the next, uh, you know, season or two until things start looking up and we can be on a road to recovery. Incredible. Thank God. Yeah, it's really, it's amazing. <laughs> I mean, this is one of the things, you know, better late than never. I can't believe right. that we're talking about mm-hmm. this a year later, it's but, um, right. Oh my God. Senator Schumer, now Majority Leader Schumer, has been Mm -hmm. a huge advocate for this, as have, you know, some other elected officials here in New York, around the country. And again, talking about organizing, you know, this was made possible because all of these groups of restaurant nightlife people organized and advocated on their own behalf around the country. Mm -hmm. And when we fight for things together, we can achieve great things. It's true. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was such a relief when I saw that because it was, you know, not knowing what goes on in the, you know, in the depths of politics mm-hmm. and um, and and being like, why can't they just pass it? Like, why is it taking so long? Right. Like, why, 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 why? So to finally see that, you know, it was that it was passed and is going to be passed further is is super exciting. And also, I feel like those checks that are going out to some folks, you know, in the country are going to help stimulate the restaurant industry as well, because people are going to have more money in their pockets. And hopefully they spend some of that money going out to restaurants in order. Absolutely. Food. Yeah. Um, and more people getting vaccinated, more people yeah. will be comfortable going out. You know, occupancy has been opening around the country at restaurants. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's going to be a very long. So, it, you know, it's, it's always in this position where it's, you know, how are you honest and truthful and optimistic and not overly pessimistic. I mean, there really has been so much doom and gloom. And look, we still have a long road to recovery. Right. Um, I think I kind of hinted at it before. You know, the question is, I have no doubt. Well, let me just flip it. Say, I have no doubt the city's restaurant nightlife industry will eventually recover. You know, eating, drinking, socializing, it's in our DNA. It's in city's DNA. I mean, this is why people love cities. And after we've been locked up for so long, you know, there's going to be nothing better than getting together with family and with friends and coworkers and going out and enjoying a great meal and drinking and celebrating. So like that's going to happen. The question is, how do we get as many of these restaurants, as many of these bars and nightclubs that are still open from here to the time where they can reopen in a market that is going to be suitable for them. You know, like in New York City, if you're in Midtown and Lower Manhattan, it's still reported that office buildings have less than 15% occupancy. So even if restaurants are able to open up at 100% tomorrow in Midtown Manhattan, you know, there's people (laughs) not there. We need, and then how are people going to come back to their office? Is it going to be a two or three day a week in the office and then you're working virtually. So some hybrid, uh, when are the nearly 70 million tourists going to come back to the new, to New York city? When is Broadway going to reopen? Um, so there's all these other factors that are really out of the industry's control that are going to, um, influence how and when the industry can make a 
quote unquote, you know, full recovery. And that's why we're going to need cheerleaders or we're going to need champions to really get people back into New York City. You know, they're starting to do some of it with this open culture plan. But I'm saying we should be doing like exciting things like, you know, Mm -hmm. why don't we have, you know, the cast of Hamilton just randomly start performing (laughs) on some block somewhere. Like, why don't we have some famous opera singer like stick their head out of a window and start singing or like have some NBA you know, basketball team mm-hmm. just like randomly start a pickup game at some basketball court. <laughs> like these things that create like an energy and, you know, like, oh my God, did you see? Like I was mm-hmm. just walking down the street and I saw this is like, if you're not on the streets of the city, you're not going to know what you, what you're going to miss out on. Yeah. So yeah. I think there's just like incredible opportunity. Um, I always say it on these podcasts and stuff, but, uh, you know, Winston Churchill had a famous quote, uh, don't let a good crisis go to waste. And I think we need to use <laughs> wow, this <that's>... crisis <laughs> and seize the momentum to rebuild a city that's more fair, more equitable, more supportive mm-hmm. um, in so many ways. And I think the open restaurants, outdoor dining program is like one version of that that's going to be made permanent. It's going to help transform our city streets in a way that I mean, I don't know when they were transformed that much, <laughs> um, Never. <laughs> you know, but it makes it a more livable city. So I think there's a lot of things like that, that we need to do when we um, rebuild. Yeah. And I think we have the foundation to do it. It's just, if we have the political world will and commitment for enough right. people to make it all happen. I think, and I think that's happening, like you said before, with, you know, with the independent restaurant um, funds and, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, all that, I mean, I was getting emails left and right to like, you know, sign, to sign something or send a letter to your yes. local senator or governor and, and um, the letter was already written and all I had to do was yeah. sign it, you know, and I thought that was awesome. I was like, this is so great. And um, yeah, I think that it's like the whole community is coming together to support the restaurant industry. And I, I hope that, you know, New York City was a great example of how opening the outdoor spaces and making it easier for people. Cause you know, I always, I go back to Boston cause that's what I'm, you know, I'm mm-hmm. used to, but in Boston, it was so hard to get an outdoor dining license, um, like almost impossible. Yeah. And to see some of my friends who still work in like in the industry, in restaurants being like, yeah, they, we just like, they allowed us to just have put, you know, chairs on the sidewalk. And as long as it was the way, you know, it followed all the regulations um, and they're going to continue to do that. And I think that's, it's amazing. And I hope that more cities across the country and even small towns, I live in New Hampshire, so much smaller, um, but right near Portsmouth and Portsmouth did that. They closed down streets. They put, you know, the tables out on the streets and um, they're going to continue doing that as well. They're actually reopening that, I think next week, which is a little too early for my liking, but (laughs) It's still like 22 degrees here. Um, but yeah, I mean. No bad weather, only bad clothes. You're right. You're right. I mean, I'm the first one, I am the first one to get bundled up and go to a brewery yeah. and sit outside yeah. by a fire. So it's, yeah. <laughs> but I just think it's, it's, it was so awesome to see like the energy and to see that happen. Yeah. And I think you're right. I mean, if more things could happen like that, um, obviously in New York city, you know, there's a huge celebrity base mm-hmm. that lives there and is there all the time. It would be amazing if you get, you know, some of those people involved and to just do things like when, um, yeah. Jennifer, Jennifer Lawrence was in Boston to film a movie. And when, um, when Biden won the election, she was like running up and down the streets in her pajamas, like, uh. <laughs> and it, and like, and then she like went to, I think she went to brunch, um, someplace in Southie and it was like all over like Instagram. And then that restaurant was like yeah. packed. Um, yeah. as packed as they could be. And I was like, see, that's, 
That's um, proof yeah, right and listen, there. every place can do, you know, <laughs> New York City's New York City, but no matter where you are, you know, there's mm-hmm. just so many cool, unique things that you can do to build an energy, build yep. community. And I think that's, again, shows us just the need for human connection. Yep. And that connection happens at our restaurants and bars. There are meeting places or social gathering spots. And um, they're so critically important to the local and overall economy. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's worth fighting for them. It's incredible that government finally stood up and is providing them dedicated, structured support. And it's, you know, a long ways to go, but that's why we'll keep on fighting. But uh, we're in a much better place today than we were just a couple of weeks ago. Right. Speaking of bringing people together too, we had read that beginning March 15th in New York City, that in-person um, events and in-person yes. and catered events could start to come back at lesser than 50% capacity or 150 mm-hmm. people. So that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, this is, think about, it. I mean, how many people postponed? I have two cousins that were supposed to get married and like it kept getting, you know, canceled and rescheduled. Now mm-hmm. we're going to cancel again. So all of these things, um, are so important, just the number of events and um, conferences that will slowly start coming back. But mm-hmm. it's again, it's a really positive direction. And I know for you know you and your whole team, that's yeah, a great, that a great thing. Yeah, big, big, <laughs> big, 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 big news. So like with everything else, there's going to be hiccups along the way, rolling this mm-hmm. whole thing out, but right. we're going in the right direction. Hopefully we can continue to increase capacity, mm-hmm. uh, do bigger and bigger events and get back to pre-pandemic parties, conferences and stuff sooner than later. It's going to be weird, right? Like at first you're going to see people, you're going to be like, hey, good to (laughs) see you. you Or like (laughs) with no mask on? Like it's like you forget like the facial expressions you're making when you're not wearing a mask. I know. I always like walk by people and, you know, they're like walking their cute dog or whatever. You just want to be nice. Like you smile at people. And I'm always like, they have no idea. They just think I'm some weirdo staring staring. at them. I'm like, no, I'm just, I swear I'm I'm smiling. Yeah, I'm making it. Exactly. The little things. Yeah, it's so true. (laughs) It's going to be weird. You know, we've really definitely um, kind of learned all these new behaviors Mm -hmm. and how long it's going to take to unlearn them yeah um, you know totally. first yep. I, I think right with a lot of stuff we um <clears throat> like we we forget pretty quickly and we mm-hmm. resort to new behaviors i mean look if we could make all these changes in, in the past year and now they seem mm-hmm. i don't want to say normal but they seem like the regular course of daily life mm-hmm. um we could certainly get better you know used to going back yeah i remember like when we did so we were we started doing these social hours on like zoom social hours Mm -hmm. with our customers and just getting them together to talk about like what they're going through and and you know it was we started them a year ago so it was Mm -hmm. when things were just starting and we would you know every week we would talk to them but one of the things that was brought up very early on the pandemic is that a lot of like the restaurants that were open to some capacity Mm -hmm. were saying that their servers were having a difficult time um expressing like like emotion to customers yeah. because they were wearing the masks and you know some of them had gloves and they were like it's yeah. so weird because you're so used to working in a certain way in hospitality especially like front of the house hospitality and then not being able to do that anymore it's just yeah. <laughs> but now Truly. they're gonna have to relearn yep <laughs> yep so strange um all right i really want to get into this question because as rachel knows and a lot of our listeners also know um i'm like I detest third-party delivery services. So I get very um, 
I don't know what the word I should use for this, Rachel, but worked I get up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I get really worked up when we start talking about this, but it's interesting because I wrote, I read an article. So like the beginning of my detest for third party delivery services is after I read an article that you wrote actually uh-huh. like a few years ago for Forbes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were talking about like the bogus charges that Grubhub was placing on restaurants. Um, they were using like those sneaky phone numbers and like websites that like weren't the real websites and and um i forget you like you cyber squatting is that yes (laughs) Yes, i love that since then i've loved that word to be honest with you um so it's like kind of like that's where my loathing began because it was in the news and then i happened upon your article and i read it and i was like oh my god i got so upset because like we said restaurants work off such a small margin already and then if you're deli- if you're like using these delivery services and before when they were charging like 30 some 30% for like a order now not only are you not making money off the delivery order but you're losing money off of it yeah. i just was like so you know i got like very um we did an episode on this back last like a year ago and i was like lost my mind so <laughs> with that said what are your thoughts now on third party delivery services like grubhub um, well i love that i had that uh, i love the fire i love it, it was a, um, yeah i get i get very emotional yeah, <laughs> It's um, how do I feel? Well, listen, I, I, I always try to preference it before I just get crazy, too, mm-hmm. is that there's nothing inherently bad about third party delivery. I right. mean, delivery is a great thing. I mean, if you're a consumer, it's great to be able to use a nice app or a website and order food from your favorite restaurants and have it delivered. And mm-hmm. that whole experience is great. It's great for restaurants. It's a huge new you know, source, well, not new, but a huge source of revenue that they can definitely continue to grow and grow and grow. So there's nothing bad about it. The bad thing is that you had a handful of these billion dollar corporations that were just completely exploiting local restaurants Mm -hmm. and in some cases, consumers as well. And it's completely inappropriate. And they had been doing it for years. I mean, the third party delivery crisis was a crisis way before the pandemic. It was just that the pandemic, like so many other things in society, expose these inequalities, expose mm-hmm. these crises, and people really took close attention. And Grubhub Seamless, I think, is the worst of them all. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have no remorse. I always say it's like they almost go out of their way to exploit restaurants and to mislead people in the industry, in yeah. government, and the general population about what they're doing. I mean, mm. the fact their commercials. I was just going to say that. Why that by somehow ordering <laughs> oh through Grubhub and Seamless, you are saving local restaurants. Oh, God. It couldn't be anything further from the truth. Right. And they, I mean, oh my God, those, those make me so angry every time they're on TV. <laughs> you know, so I get it. They have a business to run. I think that there probably is some market where you could have restaurants doing delivery and you can have third party delivery companies. And there are some good ones mm-hmm. and they exist more harmoniously and everyone makes money. And that's the way it is. But unfortunately, and this is maybe more of a function of kind of tech and raising money is that, you know, you have a couple of these companies whose investors allow them to burn through hundreds of millions of dollars okay. in cash to gain market share in the hopes of one day, just maybe possibly in the future, we're going to become profitable. Yep. And, you know, Grubhub has been profitable. 
and they were still burning through all this cash doing all of this stuff. And um, I mean, I could go into a whole rabbit hole about right. this, but <laughs> at the end of the day, they use their market share and their leverage to continue to increase their prices and reshape consumer purchasing behavior in a way that no matter how a customer will order from a restaurant, they will extract some sort of fee. And that fee always comes at the expense of restaurants. And because of their monopoly size power, mm-hmm. independent restaurants just can't fight back. You know, it's take it or leave it. They feel like they can't be on their platform because they can't afford it, but they can't not be on their platform because they can't afford it. And the companies use these sophisticated techniques. I mean, you mentioned setting up, you know, secondary phone calls where they numbers where they were charging restaurants bogus fees for orders that never happened. They own the customer data. (laughs) So restaurants feel like they can't leave the platform because then they lose access to their customers and then Mm -hmm. their customers will just receive, you know, promotions from their competitor restaurants. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so there's a whole list of things and it's just horrible. Thankfully, we got temporary caps on third-party delivery fees in New York City. They've popped up around the country, showing that mm-hmm. it's not just a New York City issue. It really is a national issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw this in Asia and Europe too, um, pre-pandemic. And I'm really hoping, and I think there's the political momentum to make these third-party delivery fee caps permanent. Um, There's another bill that we're pushing here in the state, which I think was going to get enacted, which would prohibit these third party companies from listing restaurants on their sites without their written permission. I mean, you have these third party delivery companies that are listing restaurants on their websites and not getting permission. And there's all the things that you would imagine would happen. You know, they scrape the website, so they put outdated menus on their website. So people are ordering from a restaurant menu items that no longer exist or that they're out of. Um, There's been scenarios where third parties have put restaurants on their website for delivery that don't even offer delivery. Um, And so there's a whole list of these horror stories. So I think we need to prohibit that practice. We also need a law that ensures that the customer data is passed through to the restaurant. So restaurants are able to communicate and market directly to their own customers. And there's not the third party delivery company basically putting a barrier in between them. Right. Because I mean, they should be able to, they're paying for their service, for that service. They should own that information and be able to use it for their own good, like sort of like a a CRM platform or something so that they can. And that's, I mean, I, I never actually even I didn't realize that they didn't have access to it. And that seems illegal somehow. <laughs> yeah. A few custom, a few, so there, you know, there's a few, and you mentioned before, like 30% per order. You right. Know? It doesn't cost a third party other than the percentage of the credit card fee, which is a pass through anyway. It doesn't cost mm-hmm. a company more to process a $40 order than a $400 order. You know, that's right. the first thing. And second thing is, if it's a repeat customer, why are you paying a full fee for a repeat customer? Maybe right. you'd pay more for a customer acquisition, but then the fee would go down. But, you know, you've seen some other companies come in where they charge a monthly subscription fee versus a per transaction fee. Mm-hmm. I think that's a smart way to go about it. Um, so there's people trying to chip away at the industry, but it's just extremely difficult when you have a company like Grubhub Seamless in New York City that estimates are somewhere between 60 to 70% of the marketplace they basically own and they're able to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to continue to own it and gain more of it. And 
engage in these other business practices that just if are not illegal or unethical. So what we're just saying is make it a more fair and equitable marketplace and uh, the marketplace will decide, but it's just yeah. totally skewed towards, um, you know, the grub hubs of the world. As well. Yeah. And, and I, I, something else I didn't realize is that, so some, and, and this must happen in, in a lot of cities, but mm. some people use like third-party delivery services just for the ordering. So they yes. use their own delivery people, but people order stuff through. So that's, yes. So that's, that's big crazy. in New York City. So we have mm-hmm. a whole crazy market. So some restaurants, um, they have their own delivery people and they'll just use like a Grubhub to list market and do the transaction. Okay. Um, then they will all sub restaurants will you don't have their own delivery people. So they use the third party platform for just doing the transaction. I'm sorry, doing the transaction and doing the physical delivery. Then you have s- some companies like relay that just do the logistics. So they just do the delivery. So you may not employ any delivery people. You have relay do the delivery and you transact it through like the grub hubs. Um, And then you have a combination where you may have delivery people. And if you get really busy, you'll um, add a few more delivery people through one of the third parties. So it's all all over the map. And do they get charged the same? Is it the same fee all across the board? um, So it's all different. The different Mm -hmm. companies, they have different fees. What we did with the New York City temporary cap, it's broken into two caps, actually. So one there's no more than there's a cap of no more than 5% for being listed on a restaurant being marketed. Okay. Then if the company does the physical delivery, they can charge no more than 15%. So if you're using the company to transact the order and do the physical delivery, the total cap is 20%. Okay. But if they're just doing the delivery, it's 15 or if they're just doing the transaction. That makes sense. That makes complete sense. That's the way it should be yeah. moving forward forever. <laughs> yep, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I'd even say we could bump down the 15% from oh, yeah. to 10%. But, right, uh, you know. right. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, okay, I'm off my rant. That's <laughs> <laughs> a good rant. party education now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I feel a little better about the situation. <laughs> um, well, I feel like we're almost out on time here. Um, would you have time for one more question or yeah absolutely okay how about we we can kind of combine the last two because i feel like they can play into each other a little bit but so as the vaccines continue to roll out and life optimistically starts to look more normal again what else other than the relief package that's being passed hopefully today um do you think that restaurants will need to get back on their feet and make life normal again and then kind of off that too what do you think the pandemic has taught us about how the hospitality is represented or not represented in legislation in general sure well i think one which i touched on before is the vaccines i mean in we can do things to help along the road to recovery but at the end of the day until there's herd immunity Mm -hmm. and everything can go back to normal and so much that you can be everywhere and interact with people without a mask and every part of society is going to be opened up hundred percent. We're going to continue to need support. I think mm-hmm. the biggest area, particularly for restaurants and nightlife where they need support is going to be rent. You know, rent is our largest fixed cost. We're paying what well, we should be paying 100%, whether we're, you know, open or closed, um, we're operating in a limited capacity. So I think we're certainly going to need 
to really look at the commercial rent crisis. I think the restaurant's relief will really help pay back Miss Rent, hopefully pay some rent moving forward. But we'll have to see where we are then. There's some bills locally in the state legislature that would like reduce rent and help both the commercial tenants like restaurants, but also help the landlords as well. Because we understand they have mortgages, they have taxes, they have capital expenses. So, you know, rent is going to be the big issue that we're going to have to look at um, in addition to this new restaurant relief. And of course, as I said, getting everyone vaccinated and getting that Mm -hmm. herd immunity and everything open at 100%. And I think moving forward, doing everything possible to keep the industry engaged. Um, I said before, it was always a challenge to organize the hospitality industry because of the nature of the business. Right. Nights, weekends, holidays, it's 24-7. It's not huge profit margins like banks where they just, you know, say, here's a $500,000 check. Go, you know, go lobby, go do this. Um, and I think as people start getting back to work, they're going to have less time for advocacy. So I think we need to ensure that the structures that were set up are fortified. So when people start going back to just running their businesses, they don't dissolve and become a distant memory of remember how we organized. And that's why we have a group like the New York City Hospitality Alliance that has paid staff and consultants and stuff like myself. So we're able to continue doing all of that work. Um, But keeping people engaged. And like you said before, you filled out um, contact your legislator campaigns or Mm -hmm. signing on to different uh, letters and stuff like that. So I think now people have kind of trained themselves to do that. I think a lot of people in the industry maybe never really spoke to their local city council member before, but now they've been on Zoom calls with their city council member. So I think people are just more politically astute and it's incumbent on organizations like ours, the Hospitality Alliance and others to really, you know, like I said, just harness that vitality and continue to use it post pandemic as a catalyst uh, to fuel our advocacy efforts, Um, because who knows what's going to happen. Like you said, it's not just the pandemic issues. There's issues with sidewalk cafes and fines and all these other issues before the pandemic hit. So they're all going to exist, you know, just because we come back doesn't mean those pre pandemic underlying issues aren't going to return. Of course, they're going to be. And it's all about what are we going to do about fixing them? Never let a good crisis go to waste, right? Exactly. 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 It's such a fitting saying. It really is. It. I know. It, it's, it's it blows my mind. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. use it all the time. Yeah. Now. It's great. Yeah. Uh, well, that was awesome. Thank you so much for of joining course. us. Um, it's so much good information for, you know, our New York City customers and listeners, but also just the industry as a whole and everything that you're doing for New York City can can really be done everywhere. So, um, yeah, I think every, I think every city needs a hospitality alliance. (laughs) That would be great. That would be great. Lots of these groups have popped up and listen, triple C, you've all been great supporters of the hospitality alliance for years. So we really appreciate that. Um, we've been doing some more, I just had some conversations with a bunch of event planners and everything. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can get you kind of connected with them. Yeah. I work with a lot of them, but, uh, thanks for everything you do. And this was fun. And hopefully sooner than later, we can do this all like in person. Absolutely. We'll be in New York city soon. Good. My God, please. As soon as I can. (laughs) Good, good, good. (laughs) Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks. Bye. 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 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Two Chicks, Three Seats. Your events industry podcast brought to you by Triple Seat, the industry leader for event management software. Find out more about Triple Seat at triple seat.com.